Welcome back, RSP listeners. It's September. Summer is dead and gone in the Northern Hemisphere. And we are the Religious Studies Project. I'm Christopher Carter, and I'm joined, as ever, uh, after what feels like months, because it's been months, by... By David Robertson. Yeah, it's been a long, hot summer, and the autumn has um, come as quite a shock, uh, including the workloads and responsibilities which are piling up. Absolutely, and we're just back from a fantastic uh, joint conference in Belfast between the British Association for the Study of Religions and the Irish Society for the Academic Study of Religions. There's going to be quite a few podcasts coming your way from that collaboration as we proceed through this new term or semester of the RSP. Um, We're going to kick off immediately um, this uh, time round with an interview from Dan Gorman, um, who's been speaking with Jennifer Graber on The Gods of Indian Country, which is a new book that she has coming out. Delighted to have Dan back. Delighted to be uh, featuring um, Native American tradition, to think, for the first time. And um, we're going to pass straight over now. Take it away, Dan. So I understand it's very hot in Texas, Dr. Graber. <laughs> it is. It's about 100 degrees here today. Now it's making me wish for our never-ending winter. I'm calling from practically Canada. Okay, that's right, that's right. So today we're going to be talking about your new book, The Gods of Indian Country, Religion and the Struggle for the American West. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in studying Native American history, particularly since your previous project was looking at Quakers and prisons? So um, the connection actually is prisons um, and when I was doing research for my first book, which is on antebellum prisons, I came across several stories in which um, I read about Native people being incarcerated after they had uh, participated in uprisings or other sorts of military conflicts with the Americans. And the more I ran into these stories, I became curious about kind of following up on them after my first book was finished. And as I began to read a little bit about some of these episodes, I found that religious reformers and missionaries were often active in forms of ministry to incarcerated Native people. Um, And so that actually sounded a lot like uh, some of the stories from my first book. And so actually prison was really the connection. And then I also, in my very first job at a liberal arts college, was asked to teach a course on Native American religions. My predecessor in the job had taught such a class. It was really popular. And when you're a young, untenured faculty member, you kind of say yes to a lot of things. Yeah. So I agreed to uh, teach a semester-long class on Native American religions, which meant um, I needed to do a lot of research to prepare. Um, and what I found was that the more research I did to prepare for that class, it helped me to um, understand a little bit more about what was going on in these episodes of Native incarceration that I was already interested in. And that's kind of how those two things came together. I see. Well, this is jumping more to the topical elements of your book, but talking about the experience of incarcerated persons, I was seeing on the news this morning about the um, ICE's incarceration of migrant children at the border um, and this mm-hmm. sort of perverted school that they make the children attend where they're inculcating them with American values, even while they can't leave these prison camps. And I, I was just curious with this, this book about reservations, do you, do, you, do you see it as having import for what we're going through right now? Um, I do. And there's a very kind of particular element because I think we talk about incarceration, the connection between incarceration and education 
in a couple of different ways. Um, currently, the way that you're talking about in terms of uh, children who are either seeking asylum or who have immigration cases being adjudicated while they're incarcerated, they have experience of educational um, structures kind of put in place inside uh, forms of incarceration uh, for migrants. Um, but then also we talk about the connections between education and incarceration when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, uh, when it comes to uh, youth in cities, especially uh, folks who are African-American or Latino who find themselves disciplined in their educational settings and moving into uh, and being moved into forms of uh, discipline that are actually through the kind of legal uh, legal structure. Uh, in the United States or through policing. Um, and I think there's a precedent in the 19th century, and you can see it in Native history, um, but it's actually reversed. Um, one thing I noticed about the 19th century and uh, the way that these are connected, these things are connected for Native people, is that it's actually a prison to school pipeline instead, insofar as some Native people um, who are incarcerated, uh, and in the, in the particular instance in my book, they're incarcerated after the 1874 Red River War, they're sent to prison, um, a military prison in this case, and uh, an officer in the army administrated this prison uh, and put in place several um, forms of discipline that he found that he thought to be very effective. He changed people's hairstyle. He changed people's clothing. He made people go to church. He made people go to class. Um, and then after this uh, period of incarceration was over, he found this experiment uh, to be so successful and so compelling that he then bought a military barracks and opened the very first off-reservation boarding school um, and modeled that boarding school on the prison, uh, the military prison that he had administered uh, in the earlier years. So it's actually a kind of reversal. It's a prison to school pipeline instead. But you can see how those structures um, are connected. Absolutely. Well, one thing I've been thinking about in some of my own research, looking at um, Philadelphia, um, you know, had the the ethnic Jewish neighborhood near the docks, but not far from that was one of the major um, boarding schools for Native Americans. And yeah. so one thing that's always struck me is that you have these children being transported thousands of miles to a completely new urban environment. I can't imagine what the dislocation would be like. Right. And actually, there's one thing we have evidence of, which I find very compelling and, and really heartbreaking. Um, we have some examples of letters that students in off-reservation boarding schools wrote back to their families on reservations and then uh, letters their families sent to them in school. Um, and these are letters in which people are trying to update one another about, you know, who is sick and who is healthy, who has a job. Um, who's actually living and who might have died uh, because such vast periods of time, of time happen uh, between these families being able to be uh, in actual physical contact with each other. Um, and so there's a kind of heartbreaking archive of materials that go back and forth between the reservation and the off-reservation schools and kind of the loneliness that pervades those letters is really, um, it's very palpable. Now, the story you're telling, uh, as you mentioned, with Indian country as this idea, it's, it's at the intersection of a couple of crumbling empires, France and Spain, and also the new American empire. So I am curious, these letters that were coming back, what language were they being written in? So it's interesting. Uh, so I look particularly in this book at the Kiowa Indians. And at this point in time, they don't have a written history in their own, or they don't have a written language uh, for, for speaking 
uh, for spoken Kiowa. That doesn't develop till the 20th century. So when they write letters home, um, some of them were written in uh, English uh, and then would have been sent back to uh, the reservation where they could be read by someone with uh, English speaking skills, um, which were just starting to kind of uh, uh, be more widely held across the uh, population in the last two decades of the 19th century. Sometimes they also wrote them in this um, pictorial language that mimicked um, and put on paper the um, motions of uh, Plains Indian Sign Language. Um, so you could see these kind of visual records or non-alphabetic uh, writing. Um, and then, for of course, for other Indian nations, there were uh, other Indian nations that already had uh, written languages. Um, and so they could write back in those languages or they could write back in English. But there's a real variety of uh, ways that people um, communicated with each other. And then people would also send each other uh, drawings uh, and then sometimes like artifacts like moccasins or uh, pieces of other pieces of clothing. Uh, so lots of things kind of circulated between, uh, in that loop between the reservation and the off-reservation boarding school. So with this book, you you mentioned in other interviews that this is a, a, a real contribution to material culture, or which is sort of, uh, I guess, what historians have been calling archaeology lately. Mm -hmm. um, one theory I've thought about when reading your book was uh, Jules Prown, who's talked about the importance of empathy in writing history, that you actually handle the objects, you gain the sensory information, you figure out how they were used. Uh, in what environments were you finding these objects? Did you have to go to the Kiowa Reservation? Were these in archives across the country? So uh, many of these things are actually not in the hands of Kiowa people. Um, there is a tribal museum and there are some artifacts uh, from the 19th century in that museum, but actually very few. Um, so most of the things that I was looking at, things like drawings, um, TP covers, shields, um, uh, calendars, which is this form of historical record keeping, um, they're in museums. Um, so I spent a lot of time at the National Anthropological Archives, which is part of the Smithsonian uh, Institution. They have uh, enormous holdings uh, in what we th would think of as kind of Plains Indian material culture. Um, so it was there where I interacted with a lot of these materials. But then other museums around the country have just hundreds and hundreds of Plains Indian drawings. Uh, and you can go and some of those places you're actually allowed to kind of um, handle those objects yourself. Sometimes those are really restricted. You might only be able to look at them while you're wearing gloves, or you might not, they might actually only make uh, uh, facsimiles available if the item really kind of, um, if they're very delicate. Um, but they're all over the place, except in Indian country. So what are your views on re repatriation then? Uh, I would, I, I'm a person who, uh, would love to see more repatriation of objects um, and the support of native communities uh, repatriating them within their own spaces and on their own terms. Um, there are uh, folks at the Kiowa Tribal Museum who interact with the Smithsonian um, and do work on kind of uh, some cultural preservation sorts of projects. Um, but there are a lot of materials, uh, Kiowa materials that are very far away from Kiowa people. Um, so one thing I've tried to do in my own research is gather digital images um, of uh, objects that are in other places. And I'm working with the tribal museum to make some of those accessible. Um, and right now, digital might be one of the forms where we can do that most easily. Um, repatriation has been a really thorny 
um, kind of thorny issue ever since NAGPRA was passed in the 90s. And I think we still have a long way to go. We're, so we're talking about this idea of repatriation. This then calls to mind the related concept of, I guess, decentering our narratives about American history. So when I think back to my, well, I'm not that old, but when I think of just a few years ago when I was in high school, there really was no Native American history being taught to us. Um, and even though the narrative of American religion has expanded to include other faiths, Native American religions really aren't a part of that. I was curious uh, if you've thought at all about how we should be teaching Native Americans religions to children. Oh, that's great. Um, and I, so I think there's a couple of things or a couple of levels on which I could um, respond to that question. Um, when I teach at UT, at the University of Texas, I have lots and lots of students who also have had very little um, background in their, at least their high school years, um, with Native American history. Um, many of them do a unit in their Texas history class um, about um, Native nations that had either occupied or uh, moved through what became Texas. Um, but it's a very much a kind of pre-colonial story. Um, and then once there are kind of Texans here, uh, Native people disappear from that story, um, which is part of Texas history, actually. Um, and so what I find is that students are really eager um, to learn more. And so one thing I've done in my own classes at UT is just up the number of lectures uh, and syllabus content uh, percentage uh, that cover Native materials. Um, so I begin my class on American religious history at Cahokia um, in the high Middle Ages, and we start with uh, a major Native city along the Mississippi. Um, and many of my students are really surprised that we start, you know, in the year 1100. Um, but that's where we start. Um, and I actually, this past year, ended the class with um, the protests at Standing Rock. Um, so I wanted to try to kind of make, like, push deeper into the Native past in North America, but also not allow Native people to disappear um, once we get into the 20th and 21st century. Um, but I can also think about this question. Uh, both my children, who are just finished fourth and seventh grade, just finished Texas, uh, Texas history. Uh, in public school, and both of them had units that um, interacted with Native history in Texas. Um, and that's one where I think, you know, Texas has a very particular and really difficult history around Native people. Um, and I think some real honesty about Texans and their real effort to rid the state of Native people um, in the mid-19th century. Like, we have to grapple with that um, when we teach this uh, as a part of Texas history. It is Texas history. And I'd love to see a little bit more kind of grappling with that story. Well, it's interesting, you living in Texas, and I'm thinking that many of the major high school textbook companies are also based in Texas, and they're advancing a, well, shall we say, conservative reading of American history. Yeah, that's right. And and Texas, of course, is a market, a textbook market that then shapes um, the national market. Um, there are other states that are interested in that same sort of narrative crafted for Texas. Um, that narrative is also uh, kind of favored in other places. So what happens in Texas textbooks then happens elsewhere as well. Um, and so actually kind of reshaping that story here has been, um, and thinking about that story has been an important part of uh, a lot of historians who work in universities here in Texas. Um, there are, there's a kind of network of us who at times go and talk at the Texas Board of Education meetings, at their public hearings, kind of working on these questions about who is represented, how the past is represented, 
um, it's an uphill battle here. I was thinking that in April, I was in Oklahoma City and I went to the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum. And yes. you can see there that the, this battle is being fought in the museum because you can tell that it was very clearly started as the Cowboy Museum. And now yes. they're bringing in the Native American exhibits. Yeah. And that's a that's a really amazing museum insofar as you're absolutely right. Like it was for a long, long time, just the Cowboy Museum, right? The National Cowboy Museum. A story uh, they and tell they had well. really kind of push that, um, the name change that adds Western heritage and then kind of tries to um, kind of broaden and be more inclusive about who's within that Western heritage kind of mirrors much bigger kind of trends in public history that are really important. And I, you know, that's a, and that museum actually has a ton of incredible Plains Indian material culture in their archive. Um, it's one of the places I went to do research. Um, they have amazing holdings. But it's not on um, display. So but it's not on display. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So they, that's another place where I think they're kind of taking baby steps or the initial steps to kind of make a more inclusive story, but um, there's still a long way to go. While I was at the museum, they had an exhibition of paintings by a, um, I believe it was a Creek Seminole artist named Jerome Tiger. He painted in the mid 20th century. And what his paintings are, are distinctive because the figures are, it's a flat background. There's no sense of depth to the picture. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading your book and looking at the many photographs of, um, well, I guess they're digital scans of these drawings that Kiowa people made. It's very mm-hmm. similar design, this, this lack of depth, this, this flat image. Yes. I was curious, have you looked at all at Kiowa art uh, since the reservation? Well, I, I guess we're still in the reservation period. Rather, have you looked at paintings made in the last hundred years, the art forms that were developing in the 19th century? Do they continue? They do. There's actually, so some, there was a set of artists um, that have been called by some folks the Kiowa Five. Um, and then eventually uh, there was a realization that there was also a female artist there. And so she's now a part of a group now dubbed the Kiowa Six. Um, artists who grew up uh, and were young children at the end of the 19th century, turn of the 20th century, and who kind of inherited Many of the artistic traditions, they would have seen people drawing, they would have seen people painting on teepees, um, they would have seen uh, Kiowa calendars where people did history, um, and they would have seen these kinds of artistic practices. Um, they then were sent to school, um, and one of the places they were sent to school, there was a teacher who really tried to um, help them develop artistic skills without um, having them necessarily abandon the particular Plains Indian visual style that they um, had learned as young young people. Um, and so there was a kind of school of artists really popular in the 1920s and 30s um, called the Kiowa Five. And there are actually now in the contemporary period um, many Native artists uh, who have a Plains Indian background um, who kind of riff on letter art um, and they kind of take um, the – uh, the kind of that flat presentation that you're talking about. Um, and they bring that into, uh, they kind of combine that with contemporary materials. Uh, so this idea, that style that developed on the plains in the 18th and 19th century on TPs and later on paper, um, is still being riffed on by native artists. Um, and it's pretty exciting. I remember in the book, you don't talk too much about the materiality of how the drawings are made. So I was curious if you might elaborate a little bit 
they're, they're creating drawings. They're sending them back from school. Previously, they would have been making drawings on buffalo hide. Do you have any information about sort of this transition about Kiowa art from being done on sort of natural materials to on the materials that are provided by the American empire? Yeah. And so there's a, and that kind of, it's that critical moment of uh, contact with the Americans that brings these new drawing materials into play. Um, one, there's an anthropologist at the Smithsonian um, who has been trying to find if we have any examples of Kiowa drawing on paper really prior to the reservation period. And she has not been able to find any, um, even though we have ample examples of uh, shields, teepees, um, buffalo hide, as you suggested. But it's really contact with the Americans, uh, first through the uh, establishment of the reservation, but then also uh, for some Kiowa in the period of incarceration. Um, the man who ran the military prison where uh, many Kiowas were sent after the Red River War um, gave out paper and pencils and colored pencils um, as a way for people to pass the time. Uh, and then later noticed that uh, the Native men were trading these uh, drawings with one another. Um, and then he encouraged them to sell drawings to tourists, um, which is one of the reasons that they show up in uh, Eastern Seaboard Museum so often. Um, so really, it's that contact with Americans that makes paper and pencil available. Um, and in some ways, there's a sort of, I mean, paper and pencil is just easier to use than yeah, sure. uh, a buffalo hide. So in some ways, like, it just becomes easier to draw uh, and to paint um, with these new materials. And Native artists just really take up those new materials with gusto. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even £1 a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. So I'd like to transition a little bit from the theoretical material to talk about the narrative of the book in particular. Okay. You begin the gods of Indian country with this evocative description of the 1873 Sundance on the Sweetwater Reservation, which is newly created in what's modern Oklahoma. I was thinking of past books of Native American history, for instance, Anthony Wallace's Death and Rebirth of the Seneca or Tracy Lavelle's The Catholic Calumet. Those also start in the middle of a ritual the way you do. Were you consciously trying? Is this a, is this a trope that you were working with or was that kind of an accidental comparison? You know, that's interesting that um, that both of those books also begin with a ritual. Um, uh, actually, my uh, inspiration for this was the beginning of Robert Orsi's The Madonna of 115th Street. Oh, right. Um, with the, uh, the street processions. Uh, with a ritual. And what I the, I remember when I was trying to figure out how to start the book, because um, it's a book that technically begins in 1803. Um but I didn't think actually starting in 1803 was the place to start because there really wasn't much contact between Americans uh, and Kiowa. Like there's no contact in that period. Um, and so I was thinking about how do I 
set up all that's at stake in this uh, contact um, that, you know, or at least that eventually will be at stake uh, with the contact between Kiowas and Americans. And this particular Sundance um, has a lot of, uh, had a lot of witness uh, or not witness necessarily, or in some ways kind of witness uh, documents left over um, and a lot of anthropological material, ethnographic interviews where people reflected back on it. Um, so there was a lot of, uh, how we say, evidence about this particular one. And, and it, to me, it was, it had a lot um it had a lot of interpretive potential because it's one where we have the first American, or at least the one that we know for sure, there's an American witnessing uh, the ritual. And he wrote so much about it, um, about his uh, experience of it. So I started to think that it could be a really great place to start. But I also didn't want to foreground um, the Quaker who witnessed it. I didn't really want to foreground his experience. I wanted to try to kind of make the reader go into the Kiowa world um, and not just the Quaker's world as he experienced the Kiowa. Um, and that made me think about Bob Orsi um, and how effectively in his book, he brings the reader with this kind of dramatic story um, uh, into the world of the Catholics who are celebrating the festa for Mount Carmel um, in, uh, in Harlem. And, you know, and I know people have lots of uh, things to say about the beginning of that book, but I find that, book really effective in drawing readers in uh, and, and bringing them into this question about uh, intercultural encounter. Um, so yeah, he's really the inspiration there. You know, I was not expecting Italian Catholics in Manhattan, but, <laughs> but now that you mention it, it does work. Yeah. I mean, that's the joy of religious studies, right? Like, you know, you can take reflections on a ritual somewhere uh, and use those tools uh, about in a ritual in a different part of the world. Yeah, comparison's tricky. For instance, when I mentioned the flat drawings without the sense of perspective that you see in European art, my mind originally went to um, actually the drawings you see in ancient Egyptian artifacts. And then I was thinking, well, is that a fair, you know, is that a fair comparison to make since they're so far apart? Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting, you know, art historians have really done uh, a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to interpreting and understanding Plains Indian visual art. Um, and I think one of the things that they have really argued um, is to take care, uh, to take this art very seriously as art, um, despite it's having a different sense of perspective. Um, and despite because uh, in the 19th century, uh, there were many people, many Americans, when they um, encountered this art, they thought it was childlike and simplistic Um and art and, and actually early anthropologists were also not interested in it because they wanted to see works on buffalo hide, not paper, right? They didn't want Native people to be changing. Uh, they wanted to preserve this kind of timeless and older uh, idea that they thought Native people had been uh, performing. They didn't want to kind of look at this paper stuff, which was they considered an innovation. Um, so it's been art historians who have really tried to say, this is art. Uh, and we need to take it seriously as art uh, in the same way that we, you know, we don't even question anymore whether what ancient Egyptians were creating was art, right? It's art. Right. Um, uh, but it took a longer time for folks to be able to talk that way about uh, Plains Indian art. And one thing I appreciate about your book is that you're using these, um, you're not only using the drawings and paintings as as validations of Native American art, you're also using it to show that they're recording their history as it's happening. So, for instance, you have 
after the Osage Indians attack in 1833, I believe, you have these drawings showing um, Kiowas memorializing their dead. Mm-hmm. And yes, as and, the, and that is. The, oh, sorry, I won't interrupt. Sorry. No, no, no it's all right. Uh, I just am getting excited about this. You know, as the book goes on, you have just example after example of into the reservation period as their lands being taken away. They're interpreting their history in a completely different language from the Americans. Right, and that's and one of the most kind of uh, pervasive ideas uh, that is a part of the whole complex that we talk about in terms of the uh, vanishing Indian, right? Um, uh, the way that Americans were kind of writing Native people out of uh, the future. Um, and they, one of the kind of tropes that would be kind of constantly brought up in the whole vanishing Indian rhetoric was, you know, these are people with no history, right? They have no sense of their own history. Um, and this would be one of the many reasons uh, that these folks would see that, you know, there's an eventual, there will be an eventual disappearance of Native people. Um, and so part of what I... Um, and I, and I think this is a bit perpetuated by historians um, who are kind of unwilling to deal with non-alphabetic sources, um, right? Like that there aren't sources outside of alphabetic uh, and textual sources. Um, and so what I really wanted to do was kind of push against or at least show how hard Americans were working to banish Indians uh, while at the same time uh, Native people were absolutely creating uh, kind of they were historicizing themselves uh, and they had debates about like, which events do you memorialize, right? What's going to go into the calendar as the most significant event of this year and different calendars have different events uh, memorialized, right? So not only are they keeping that history, they debate that history. Um, and yeah, so I, it was important to me to um, really front load those sources uh, and then also kind of, uh, kind of send a message to historians who often say that it's difficult to work on native materials. Um, if you don't have a textual or a written language in any period, like, yes, you can, you just have to be creative about it. In, in designing the layout of the book, did you select the position of the images or did your editors do that? Um, we kind of worked together. Um, I usually suggested a placement um, and sometimes they took the suggestion, um, you know, and just went with it. And other times we kind of negotiated where things might go. Um, I feel really lucky um, from the beginning. I asked them for some color plates, like a section of color plates. Yes. Um, and and there was completely shocked when they said yes. Um, uh, so unfortunately the plates can't be um, kind of interspersed in the text just because uh, that would make production very difficult. Um, but I'm really glad they're there. They mean you have to kind of toggle through um, the text a little bit. Um, when one of those plates comes up, but, um, I'm really glad that it's present. Um, and, and, and one of the things I found early on with the editors and the outside reviewers, um, is that they, um, they were very open to the placement of especially, um, Kiowa drawings and Kiowa calendar examples as ways to kind of reinforce, um, this message that they are documenting themselves, remembering their past, um, and, and interpreting their new situations. There's an encyclopedic component to the book, I suppose, in that you're bringing these images to a wider audience. You also supply uh, an extensive appendix of historical figures from the Kiowa community. Um, I, you know, I forget the word Wikipedia uses. I think it's disambiguating because you say oh. there are all these name variations and you put them right. all in one place for the first time. 
Yeah, and actually, um, there, I worked with an anthropologist who's been uh, active in Kiowa country for a very long time, and he was very generous. Um, he's a he has worked for a long, long time to collect not only kind of all the possible Kiowa name variations uh, uh, that are possible because they appear in lots of different ways in different kinds of sources. Um, so he was really vital. Um, in my effort to uh, get names spelled correctly and represented correctly, because um, there's just so many ways. There's still a long history of Native names being mangled by American authors. Um, so I just wanted to be really as careful as I possibly could um, and do the best um, work around naming uh, and making sure that I could um, give the best and most thorough account of naming that I could, because naming is one of the places where um, I think there's been shortcuts taken in American history, in the work of American history. What would you say the book's thesis is? Um, I'd say it has two. Um, I have a thesis about the Americans who are involved um, in the process of uh, colonizing the Kiowa and, a, and then a thesis about the Kiowa themselves. Um, in terms of those who are um, the Americans operating to colonize Kiowas, um, I was interested in the folks who saw themselves as a peaceful, um, a kind of peaceful vanguard coming into Indian country. Um, these were folks who decried what was happening with the military, uh, and when there would be military attacks on Native people, they hated Andrew Jackson um, and and Indian, the Indian Removal Bill. Um, but they were absolutely kind of foundational and crucial to American expansion. Um, and I think that their effort to designate expansion as potentially peaceful enterprise was very effective. Um, and it really, they very effectively masked other kinds of colonial violence. Um, they weren't Andrew Jackson. They weren't Sherman. Um, they didn't operate in those ways, um, but they were absolutely essential to the occupation uh, and suppression of Kiowa people uh, and somehow very successfully named that a peaceful process. Um, so that was what I wanted to study about them. Like, how did they effectively name something violent? Um, take something violent and name it peace and convince everybody. Um, Cause I think they did. I think they convinced other people that this was peaceful. Um, so that's my main kind of concern with those folks. Um, I think with Kiowa, uh, the thesis in terms of the Kiowa response, um, I wanted to show that religion was one of the central ways and one of the central places that uh, Kiowas could draw on traditions, but also create these new sorts of rituals to address uh, changing situations. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of show that there were ways of riffing on the past uh, and bringing the past into the present, but then also this kind of incredible ritual flex, uh, flexibility and creativity that helped them as they tried to resist occupation. In terms of resistance, you don't use the word um, prophetic to describe the sort of religious practices that are happening on the reservation, the Sundance, the ghost dance, eventually experiments with peyote, um, even interpretations of Christianity. What was your choice not to use the word prophetic? Um, there are a couple of reasons for it, partly because um, in the 19th century, um, and this happened with kind of movements around the United States, um, that word could be used derisively by Americans. 
Um, they would talk about maybe a, a, a tribal nation that had some sort of revitalization movement um, in uh, direct response to American occupation. Um, and they would talk derisively about a prophet who was at the center of it, right? Uh, and usually meaning prophet in like scare quotes, um, like not a real prophet, right? But a prophet to these people with bad religion. Um, so I wanted to get away from it because it had been used pejoratively. Um, and then I think also there's so much great work in religious studies about varieties of movements in colonial settings where religion is kind of reimagined to address a colonial situation um, that I wanted to kind of draw on language from that work. I felt, I felt that that, um, that those uh, writings, whether they be about sub, uh, you know, colonial era uh, occupations of parts of sub-Saharan Africa or in Australia um, that work was really, to me, way more useful um, and had so much more kind of something much more. The language out of those projects was so much more kind of compelling and rich um, that I thought, you know what, I just don't even need this word prophet. <laughs> um, it would have been a little easier. Right. Like I think when you say Native American prophecy, it communicates something uh, to people, to readers. Right. They might think of. Tecumseh's brother. They might think of Handsome Lake. Um, so there's some effectiveness and usefulness to it. Um, but I was willing to kind of give that up um, because this other, I wanted to kind of see if we could do something else with some other kinds of language. So we're just about out of time, but we're almost up to the present talking about uh, the endurance of Kiowa religion. At the close of your book in the epilogue, you talk about your own journey to Kiowa country uh, in Oklahoma and witnessing these ceremonies, and you know, you're you're seeing things that outsiders typically don't, and it's very fraught to for, to be a white person to be present there. How did Kiowa people respond to you wanting to tell their story without being a full member of the community? Well, when I went to visit, one of the things I always tried to make clear was that I was not an anthropologist, right? I wasn't doing interviews. I wasn't going to quote. Um, I wasn't, uh, taking big observations. I wasn't trying to be a kind of classic participant observer. Um, so in some ways, um, I didn't necessarily bear the burden. I think that anthropologists often bear, um, when they go to work within native communities. Um, I have some friends who are anthropologists in Kiowa communities, right? And they are people who have these kind of decades long, uh, sets of relationships. Um, so one thing I tried to make clear was that my story is using historical sources, but that anyone who, you know, anyone kind of working in Native American history today um, also talks about how there's a sort of responsibility to the present. Um, and, you know, Peter Nabokov in his book talks about this, right? Like there's no Native history that doesn't have a connection uh, to today. So I think one of the things I felt like I needed to do was just to try my best to understand the present um, without really asking anything. Um, so when I would go there and uh, I just would do things like show up at church. Um, and if folks wanted to talk to me, great. Um, if not, great. Uh, and that helped me. I kind of just started by showing up. Uh, but I really wanted to be clear about not kind of asking for anything. Um, and I think I just kept showing up enough, uh, that I made some friends. Um, and, uh, and I think along with that, I've always tried to signal that my hope is, uh, that I will, if anything is desired of me, I will give it back. Um, 
So, you know, I think, I think it's a different, um, I think when historians are dealing with native communities, even though, even though you have this kind of uh, project that's related on documents from the past and you don't necessarily ever have to, you know, I could have written this book and never gone to the reservation. Um, but I also felt that by going there, I was able to write about the past with an eye toward the present, especially because this, I can see those communal values, um, that, that I write about in the past, those are still operative. Uh, and I witnessed those things. Um, and that was really kind of powerful. And I think it helped me write a better book. We have been speaking to Jennifer Graber at the University of Texas, Austin. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. I had fun. Wonderful to hear from you, Dan. And Dan's been um, quite rightly uh, pushing uh, for that interview to, to go out as early as we could uh, because of its uh, particular tie-ins with the current political situation with a certain orange man um, in the north of America. So, thanks yeah, so why, why do I feel that his name's going to come up? Um, you know, more than once in the next little run of episodes. I don't know. Talking of topical, um, we've just been uh, recording uh, a special episode, uh, one of many, we hope, for our Patreon subscribers. Um, well, I suppose we can tell you a little bit about it. Um, it we, we thought that we, we've got this sort of... Um, critical mass of critical analysis going on on the RSP, but why not turn it towards um, contemporary news stories and contemporary developments in um, the RS field that might, that should be of interest to our listeners. So we recorded a nice half hour there with Brianne Fallon all the way from Sydney and um, that will be available on Patreon shortly. So watch out for that. And it's a uh, sort of uh, encouragement uh, for for you all to sign up there. One one dollar a month gets you um, that new show, which we haven't got a title for yet. Um, once every few weeks, um, different guests each time. It gets you some special um, Q and A episodes. We've just recorded one with Carol Cusack, and we've got another one in the pipeline, and some other exclusive stuff. I've got a video of a presentation Chris and I did on um, digital humanities, which I'm preparing to upload as well. So $1 a month gets you all of those. Plus, of course, it gets you uh, classroom edits of these episodes, which, uh, ironically, if you're you, you listening to one, you won't hear this because it's just the interview without our presentation and without the adverts and the rest of it. And it's designed for you to use in uh, in teaching in the classroom, um, you know, just going straight to the interview. And on that note, um, we've also uh, been delighted to receive uh, sort of a subscription from um, the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama, uh, facilitated um, by one of our trustees, Russell McCutcheon. And, and, so the the whole department at Alabama are going to be getting access to um, all of this bonus content. So if you um, have a lot of students, if you're involved in a department, you may want to consider a departmental sponsorship. I mean, contact um, Sammy Bishop about that um, through the RSP site, and we'll uh, we'll get that content to you. On the topic of the website, mm, you may have noticed um, something of a facelift. Long overdue, we'd been talking about it for years. You probably thought we were um, just flapping our gums. But no, uh, it was a big job, so we, uh, we've we hired somebody to do it. 
Um, given that it's such a big job and a complicated site, there are inevitably a few gremlins uh, creeping about. If you find them, for God's sake, don't feed them after midnight or get them wet. Just drop us an email at editors at religiousstudiesproject.com and we will put it on our list of things to fix. And we'll get it all sorted in due course. Yeah. Big one is uh, images. We're well aware that um, a lot of the old images might appear sort of stretched and out of proportion. We'll, we'll be working through that. Um, so apologies that it's not quite perfect, but we hope that you enjoy the, the general um, aesthetic of the new face. Um, we certainly do. Yeah, it's uh, it's not only aesthetically improved, but um, it sh- should be much more functional uh, in terms of searchability, for instance, is much improved. Um, so, yeah, have a play, have an explore and anything you find, uh, let us know. So next week, um, we've got a roundtable episode for you. Um, I um, had a cracking conference at the um, European Association for the Study of Religions back at the end of June in Bern in Switzerland. Um, uh, I recorded four interviews there. Sammy Bishop recorded two. Tom White recorded two. And we also got this roundtable and a load of video content recorded as well. Um, So we thought, because the roundtable is on the topic of academic conferences in general, what are they for, who are they for, what do they achieve, and we reflect a lot on the conference itself, and we're present in Moritz Klenk's amazing podcasting studio, and we thought that would be a good way to sort of set the scene for um, the eight interviews that are going to be following uh, from the conference over the next few months. Um, Yeah, and, you know, an enormous thanks uh, is due to the EASR for their support of the RSP, which allowed us to have um, such a presence there and and record so many interviews. Uh, That is something that's going to be ongoing. We will have an RSP official uh, correspondent, I suppose is the word, at the EASR uh, next year and the year after that, hopefully, and uh, hopefully in perpetuity. Uh, so thanks to the EASR for making that happen. And I think we've wittered on quite enough there. There's, you know, a thing I've been dying to say for months. I, I've been saying it in the shower, in my sleep, um, to, to anyone who's who's been speaking to me or, or, or being forced to uh, be in my presence on public transport. Uh, Is it, leave me alone, <laughs> leave me alone. So thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget, you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.